Welcome to the Farmers Weekly Podcast, this episode recorded on Friday the 3rd of March 2023. From the Farmers Weekly News Desk, I'm Johan Tasker. And I'm Hugh Broom. This week, is it really black gold? We go carbon farming with growers and livestock producers in Sussex. On the markets, we find out why beef prices have hit a record high and we meet the winner of this week's commodity cashback competition. We look at what the Windsor framework deal between the UK and Brussels means for Northern Ireland's farmers. And we hear from the UK producers turning the tables on New Zealand by sending sheep genetics back to the Kiwis. The Farmers Weekly Podcast. But first, you may remember a few weeks ago we discussed the lack of progress on farm policy in Scotland and whether industry leaders are cozying up too much with the Scottish Government rather than piling on the pressure for politicians to come up with a proper vision for agriculture. Well, the issue raised its head again this week during our Farmers Weekly Question Time event at SRUC Oatridge, Scotland's Rural College in West Lothian. NFU Scotland President Martin Kennedy and Scottish Government Agriculture Director George Burgess were both on our expert panel answering questions from our audience of farmers. Now, it certainly wasn't a loving, but there was an awful lot of agreement between George Burgess and Martin Kennedy about what needs to be done and when. Here's George Burgess on maximising food production. I'm going to very largely agree with Barton. The vision for agriculture that the Scottish Government set out, key part of that vision is high-quality food production combined with tackling climate change. On the need to integrate trees within the farmed landscape... Again, I'm agreeing with Martin, making a bit of a habit of this. The integration of woodland with farming is is the right way to go. On the importance of farmers leading change... For the third time this evening, I'm going to agree with Martin, the importance of farmers leading uh, in this. And on encouraging more youngsters into agriculture. At the risk of agreeing with Martin for the fourth time tonight, and it really has to to stop, agriculture farming has changed so much. It is about... You know, the STEM subjects and, and you know, applying that. So it's, it's not just the, the place that, you know, the, the, you know, the kids that, you know, they couldn't do their own levels or whatever, or we'll send them off to the rural studies department and that or that will do fine. Farming now is actually a far more complicated, maybe academic subject than it, than it, than it was um, in, in the past. I asked both men whether the relationship between NFU Scotland and the Scottish Government was too close. First up, Martin Kennedy. There's loads of people suggest that I'm too close to government. I'd, I'd actually rather be in there and running it, to be honest. If we really, <laughs> can't, can't, actually, can't actually get close enough. But I think being honestly really blunt here, um, it's very difficult influencing decisions getting made when you're standing outside and not having been in that position to try and influence. And I'm there representing the industry to the best of my ability, um, as is the whole of NFU Scotland. But the reality is, it comes back to my first point, is... Let the industry lead this and we'll do it in a manner that, that's done by... There's 1% of our population put the food in our tables, but it seems to be there's 99%, other 99% of the experts. And that's really, really frustrating because I think we'll go hungry a lot quicker if we left it to any one of these other 99% to actually deliver it for us. And George Burgess. We're trying to work together, government, industry and the other people that have uh, an interest uh, uh, in, in this sector. It may, yeah, sometimes... Feel, feel a bit slow, but hopefully through that we will get to an outcome that is good for all. The risk is, as we've perhaps seen elsewhere, government motors ahead with, with a policy uh, and then industry saying, wait a minute, this just isn't going to work. That's Scottish Government Agriculture Director George Burgess and before him, NFU President Martin Kennedy, both acknowledging the need to work together, but certainly not a bromance. So, Johan, um, you had a good turnout for the second Farmers Weekly question time from the SRUC uh, venue. This whole question around the Scottish NFU and the Scottish Government, we sort of touched on this the other week when Abby was up at the Scottish NFU AGM. 
was it fairly apparent to you that it's almost like there's a love-in between the union and the Scottish government and not much is happening as a result? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, there is uh, there is a certain amount of, you, of, of agreement as to what might be, what must be done, what should be done. And uh, George Burgess, who's the interim director of agriculture and rural economy at the Scottish government, was on the panel at this Question Time event. Also on the panel was NFU Scotland President Martin Kennedy. And it was apparent um, during the, the Question Time that there was a lot of agreement between the two. I have to say it was George Burgess agreeing more with NFU Scotland than it was Martin Kennedy from NFU Scotland uh, saying that he agreed with uh, what the Scottish government was was doing. But just a couple of examples. George Burgess agreed with Martin Kennedy uh, largely on the idea that Scotland had a moral uh, obligation to maximise food production, but he did say that that should be done within the context of, a, a, of the environment and sustainability. So there was there, there was agreement largely there. There was also agreements that uh, woodland should be integrated uh, within the farming landscape, that that was the way to go rather than these sort of huge, uh, huge plantations uh, that, that, uh, that, that would be planted to uh, sequester carbon. So there was this, the, the idea that the, that woodland should be integrated within the farm landscape. That was another point of agreement. And, uh, uh, and another further example was that, um, that Martin Kennedy was saying that the, that, that really the, the industry as an industry leader, he had to be at the heart of, uh, or farming. The industry had to be at the heart of, uh, agricultural policy. And, uh, and George, George Burgess again agreed with that, that, uh, that, that the industry should be driving agriculture within Scotland rather than, uh, he said, you know, Stalin, <laughs> as it were, Stalin had uh, tried to uh, implement a sort of a, a plan for agriculture in the former Soviet Union and that hadn't worked and it wouldn't work in Scotland. It had to be owned and, and driven by the industry itself. So there was a lot of uh, agreement there. And I put it to Martin Kennedy, was he too close to the government? And he said, look, you know, to be honest, he, he was joking, but he said he'd like to be running the show. He felt that the industry should have a say and he had to be close to government to get things done. So despite this closeness to government, and Martin Kennedy has come under fire from his own members, from, 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 from other people in, in the Scottish industry, uh, for being so close to government, he sits on the, the committee which is trying to decide the reforms of, of Scottish ag policy going forward post-Brexit, and yet the whole process is is sort of almost ground to a halt, isn't it? I mean, some in the industry there saying it's almost like they're purposefully standing on whilst they slowly watch everything sort of bleed away and, and, and it sort of solves all their climate problems, gets rid of the right number of cows and farmers and they can move on. Yeah, I, I, and again, I put it to, I mean, fair play to George Burgess. You know, he's the director or the interim director of agriculture and rural economy. You know, hands up. We tried to get Murray uh, Goodgen on the panel uh, but she she declined. She's the uh, the Scottish uh, cabinet secretary for for the rural economy. She she said no. So George Burgess, who's essentially a civil servant, so he's defending these uh, policies, explaining these policies. He's not necessarily the architect of them. But you know, uh, to be honest, you, I, I think he gave a good account of uh, of the position of the Scottish government. So he he had to deal with this sort of frustration. Uh, and there is this concern over the Scottish national beef herd. Is the government in Scotland uh, willing to see it uh, decline, to see numbers dwindle? He insisted that, again, that the government was backing Scottish beef, Scotch beef, and that it, uh, but it had to do so in, in a way that was sustainable. But there is this frustration, as you say, that things are just not moving quickly enough, that whilst in, in England, for example, we know where we're going, we might not like it, but we know where we're going in terms of the basic payment scheme. But in Scotland, there is this, as we've said before on the podcast, this policy vacuum that things are moving 
too slowly and it's difficult for farmers to uh, to, to make long-term business decisions because of that. So what were the other issues that the crowd um, brought to, to, to the panel in terms of questions, uh, Johan? Well, a lot of them, Hugh, were regarding environmental policy and net zero and agriculture. So there was this uh, question about does the quest for net zero put food safety and security at risk? Um, this was a, a sort of a slight point of disagreement uh, between Martin Kennedy and George Burgess that uh, that Martin Kennedy was saying, yes, you know, it, it, it does uh, potentially put food security at risk. Uh, George Burge is saying, look, actually, from his point of view, the Scottish government's point of view, that uh, if we didn't take into account net zero, that uh, that, that neglecting it, that not not uh, being on this quest for net zero, that in fact would put food, food security at risk. Another question, what impact will Nicola Sturgeon's resignation have on agricultural policy going forward? Um, I, uh, the consensus was that it shouldn't have too much of a, a an, of an impact on ag policy. But again, this frustration that policy isn't being uh, drawn up and devised and implemented quick enough. And, and then a question that we also had at Harper Adams, how do we encourage more people into, into farming? You know, we've got to attract people from outside the industry into into agriculture simply because um you get by doing that you get more innovation you get better ideas more enthusiasm and uh, and 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 new blood coming into the industry is a good thing so there's a, a taste of some of the questions that uh, that were being asked and we have put a whole recording and a special episode of the farmers weekly podcast up which is a whole recording of that evening it's uh, just over an hour long and you can you can listen to that in uh, uh, on the farmers weekly podcast channel here offering best in class visibility and an industry leading four meter turning radius the narrowest steep nose bonnet and practical features the massey ferguson 5s series is the ultimate load attractor for dairy livestock and smaller arable operations. With an array of awards under its belt, the MF5S has just been crowned Farm Machine 2023 at this year's SEMA show. The MF5S series is packed with the right functionalities for your everyday farming operations. Available with Visio Roof for added visibility during loader work and high flow hydraulics up to 110 litres a minute. Brake to neutral and multifunction joystick for excellent control. Up to 6,000 kilogram lift from the rear and 3,000 kilograms at the front for the toughest jobs. If you're looking for a high specification, high performance tractor with nimble, compact capabilities, look no further. Visit our website, massyferguson.co.uk or contact your local MF dealer for more information. The Farmers Weekly Podcast. Ulster farm leaders have cautiously welcomed the government's Windsor framework. The post-Brexit deal should, they hope, make it easier in some areas of trade, such as using seed potatoes. But other areas, such as trading livestock and veterinary medicines, remain challenging. Professor Alan Winters is from the Centre for Inclusive Trade Policy. I mean, I think it's a big deal precisely because it has a chance of um, clearing the political air um, and you know, leading on to a lot of other things that are potentially useful. It's basically the roadblock, I think, to um, well, the protocol has been the roadblock to UK-EU relations, and uh, the Windsor framework um, has a chance of uh, removing it, changing the atmosphere completely. Um, I think it also is important in the sense of suggesting that Quiet diplomacy rather than megaphone diplomacy sometimes brings home the goods. And I do think it's probably about the best deal that one's going to get. In the sense, if we don't accept this, it's very difficult to see what better outcome there could be. Sam Chesney is a beef and sheep farmer in Northern Ireland. The concessions that we've got, that we can read about so far, is that we're getting seed potatoes into Northern Ireland albeit very important for the potato producers. The livestock movements from GB to Northern Ireland and Northern Ireland to GB have not been sorted out. It's still the same six-month period if you take stock to, to England and want to bring them back. It's, it's gone through this transition of veterinary paperwork and scrutinising. 
It's just not. It just hasn't happened for that. No animal feed can come to Northern Ireland still. The drugs and medicines, uh, it's on a licence for a year and a half. So that's all has to be looked at again in a year and a half time. We've got, we've got a, you know, we've got a grace period. So really, for my business, it hasn't done anything for me. He went on to say that what Northern Ireland's farmers really need is a government back up and running at Stormont. To me, it has only pacified people, Marks and Spencer's, Tesco's, ASDA, getting loads of food into the supermarkets. To me, they're the big winners on this. We need to get Stormont up and running very, very quickly. Um, the TB strategy, it's coming for where we're, we're, you know, we're hoping to have a livestock, a, a, a wildlife intervention. We can't do that without a minister. Our future agriculture support, we need the minister to sign that off. There's an ammonia consultation sitting on the table now with draconian measures being imposed, we think, um, to Northern Ireland agriculture. We need a minister and an assembly to debate all this. And those are the things that are on the ground that will really impact farming in Northern Ireland. And we produce food for 12 million people, and we're, we're a million and a half. Um, and they don't want us to do that. You know, they just want us to produce enough food for ourselves. It's just totally lunacy in this world of increasing population. According to Professor Alan Winters, if this agreement is finally signed off, it will help to improve the UK's credibility on the world stage. Frankly, Britain's reputation around the world is pretty low at the moment, and uh, a significant part of that is we sign stuff and don't do it. It doesn't restore it as of now. It's not that if Sunak gets this all agreed and goes through Parliament and sort of gets blessed and so on, that the next day everything is restored. But it does start. That's Professor Alan Winters from the Centre for Inclusive Trade Policy. So Hugh, crisis averted? Or, 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 are we making the best of a bad job here? Um, look, I think it, I think everyone was very surprised, weren't they, that Rishi Sunak did as well as he did with the agreement that he agreed with the EU over Northern Ireland. As you heard from the contributors in the in the package, there, you know, this is just down to just g- slow, gentle, polite diplomacy, as opposed to sort of the sort of sledgehammer politics we sort of saw with Boris Johnson and his team. So I think it's a, a reasonable achievement. It's a big achievement, actually. And I think the key thing here, I think, for me. And when you read many other observers as well, is it's it's cha- it has changed the dynamic uh, with the relationship with Europe. So one can only hope that off the back of this, assuming that the DUP and the various other parties are happy to go forward with this, that it will be a next step uh, to further refining. I suppose the next step is further refining the actual Brexit agreement or post-Brexit ag- trade agreement we have with Europe. For the Northern Irish Though I think the key thing here is, yes, it solves some of the problems, but as you heard there in the audio, it doesn't from Sam. You know, it doesn't really solve that many issues. There's still issues around animal imports, the livestock imports, exports. There's still issues around animal meds. You've only got you know a, a, a year and a half extension just to cover that off. Um, if you use feedstuffs from the UK. Uh, in Northern Ireland, you then have to make sure, for example, that the animals you fed that on are then fed back into the UK supply chain as opposed to the EU supply chain. So there's all sorts of silliness like that still going on. What you heard there, though, that they desperately need is a government that's working for them back in Stormont, which they just don't have at the moment. And we will get that eventually on the back of this uh, Windsor framework, will we? Well, it depends, doesn't it? Because if the DUP, there's two things going on here. And if you listen to read or listen to observers of this, they will tell you. You've obviously got the DUP going over this with a fine tooth comb. Some would argue that they're taking their time. Others would argue that they're being very diligent on behalf of their constituents. But equally, some people would say as well that if that Stormont government comes back together based on the previous election, that Sinn Féin will be the, the party that's in charge. And clearly, that's something that the DUP has never had happen to them before. So they're pretty reticent about that. But what you sense, and I mean, Sam said it totally in the audio there, what you sense is aside the politics of individuals, the, the background, the heritage, the, the past, what you really sense is there are so many people on the ground in Northern Ireland who are just so frustrated. They just want to get a government back in there so they can start to move forward. Um, you know, UK farmers or farmers in England, say, for example, have been frustrated. Finally, we now have some SFI plans. We're starting to see the mist clear on, on, on UK farm policy. 
nothing has happened in Northern Ireland for several years. And there's some really big issues there, whether it's around stuff that's affecting the industry hugely at the moment, like TB control, or whether you're talking about ammonia emission control going forward. There was the environmental sort of impact assessment that was done on Northern Ireland's farming industry before that the last evolved administration stopped, you know, and that proposed some pretty huge draconian changes um, to Northern Ireland's agriculture to, to, to make them or help them to get towards net zero. And they're very controversial. So there's some huge things to be resolved here, but all the time they don't have a government, it isn't happening. The hope will be that this Windsor framework gets across the line with the DUP and many people, I think, in Northern Ireland will be hoping, and farmers in particular, that that government can get back to work and start to deliver some stuff so they can plan their businesses going forward. Farming's not easy these days, but for businesses like mine, the Game Changer programme has been, well, a game changer. It's a fully integrated beef supply chain, starting with the highest quality Aberdeen Angus genetics and ending with the best British beef on the supermarket shelves at Sainsbury's. Game Changer is a fully financed model, which provides high health status calves. The programme offers a stable, locked-in price, so I know exactly what I'm getting. It means I can crack on with farming, with a little less fretting about where we'll be next month or next year. What do you think? Secure, supportive and efficient. I'd recommend Game Changer to any farmer. They're recruiting dairy farmers, rearers and finishers right now. Search Game Changer Beef to find out more. Come on then. The Farmers Weekly Podcast. You're indeed listening to the Farmers Weekly Podcast. A very warm welcome wherever you happen to be listening to us from. Uh, podcast at fwi.co.uk. That's podcast at fwi.co.uk is our email if you want to get in touch. Uh, Johan, we've had an email this week from Germany. We have indeed, Hugh. With uh, an email from Germany from Eikenir and Peter Brawlman, who say that uh, they run a small arable farm and consult on business management in Germany. Uh, one of their farmers has planted fifty-five hectares, Hugh, which is, I, I, I guess, a hundred and thirty acres or so, with a cider apple orchard in twenty twenty, and they're now looking for the right machines for harvesting. and And can we help them out? Well, uh, Peter and Ike, we can help you. Out out and we will put you in touch with some people here in the uk who might be able to uh, give you some advice so fantastic email hugh and uh, and of course here in the uk people are ripping up uh, apple orchards at the moment so uh, in germany they're actually planting them yeah, no, it's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, a brilliant email. Thank you so much for sending it in, Peter and Ike. Don't forget, if you want to get in touch with the podcast, you can. It is podcast at fwi.co.uk. That's podcast at fwi.co.uk. Thank you, Peter and Ike. But now it's time for this. Farmers Weekly Commodity Cashback in association with Farm Plan. Hello. Hi there, is that Alan? Yes, yes. Hi Alan, it's Hugh Broom here from the Farmers Weekly Podcast. Okay, yes. You entered our competition this week. Um, okay, very good, yes, I did. And and you're our winner, you've won £50. Oh, oh that's great, I will be it this weekend. That's great, thank you very much. Tell us, whereabouts are you Alan? Uh, I was just outside, outside uh, Derry, uh, Northern Ireland, yeah, I'm a beef and uh, sheep farmer and some arable. How's the beef trade in Northern Ireland? Is it as mad as it is here in the UK? UK, the rest of the UK? That's uh, mad, yeah. The, 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 you appear to be doing better in the market, but the, the other side of the coin is the uh, cost of inputs and uh, rising costs all the time. But we have to manage and move on. Well done, Alan. Thank you so much for entering Commodity Cashback and enjoy spending your £50. I must say your podcasts are very good. I listen to them all the time. Thank you very much. Big congratulations there to this week's Commodity Cashback winner, Alan Hunter from Northern Ireland. Now, next week, we want you to tell us the price of Continental Cross ball calves as you think it'll appear on page three of Farmers Weekly on Friday the 10th of March 2023. And I can tell you that the price of Continental Cross ball calves this week is exactly £154. What will it be next week? Text the word farm followed by your guess and your name to 88440. Texts are charged at your network provider's normal rate and the deadline is Wednesday the 8th of March at 11.30pm. You'll still be charged for texts sent after this date 
that your entry will not be counted. Terms and conditions are at fwi.co.uk forward slash commodity cashback. Commodity cashback is brought to you by Farm Plan. Lacking the financial confidence to keep your business healthy, that's taken care of with Farm Plan Business Cloud. Farmers Weekly Commodity Cashback in association with Farm Plan. Big congratulations indeed to Alan Hunter. Well done, Alan. And don't forget to get your entry in for the commodity cashback. Big prize of £50. You can win that next week. Right, Johan, the magazine this week. What have you spotted? The magazine, Hugh. Hard to miss the cover story. First impressions on Volkswagen's new Amarok pickup. We've got a, this is a long awaited return to the pickup sector by Volkswagen. A posse of Amaroks topping out with a three litre V6 and uh, George Barrow there in the machinery section. He takes an early look and uh, looks at what's what and, uh, and gets the lowdown on this, uh, on the new pickup. Excellent stuff. Um, news pages packed full of stuff, actually. Uh, a couple of things that caught my eye. Ian Farquharson. I'm, we're going to get this guy on the podcast, actually, because I've only just seen this on the news pages. Ian Farquharson is a sheep farmer from Dorset who is campaigning uh, with his local MP to have a change to the law made uh, so that you actually have to have your dog on a lead when you're near livestock. And it's not just quotes under control uh, it has to be on a league lead so that's quite interesting also markets pages uh, not surprisingly talking about more uh, pressure downward pressure on dairy prices and something we're going to talk about with michael Priestley in a few minutes uh, beef prices x farm bid factory bids for prime beef this week broke through the five pound a kilo barrier for the first time ever so some big news there also a uh, big news in the dairy sector hugh tributes flooding into dairy industry giant ian potter who died suddenly aged 62 after a short illness um i remember meeting uh Ian, on a number of occasions, Hugh always had farmers' interests at heart, always uh, had a bit of a twinkle in his eye as well. Uh, Chris Walkland, dairy industry commentator, describes Ian as a larger-than-life character, while Di Wastenich, of Royal Association of British Dairy Farmers Chairman, says he was a massive asset to the dairy sector, and he was also... Hugh, a previous winner of the RABDF's Princess Royal Award for Outstanding Services to Dairying, and uh, he will be sadly missed. He'll be hugely missed. His price commentary, and the thing with Ian, he was never afraid to get out there, and he was uh, fair play to him. He was, you know, he would wind the dairy farmers up by saying the market's going to go one way and it will go the other, and, and he was, yeah, fantastic and really sad news there. And our thoughts, obviously, uh, with his family. Um, other articles this week. There's a good double page spread uh, talking about the future of uh, small abattoirs and what could potentially be done there uh, to make things easier and page 2425 here we go this is what you need a load of time saving tips debbie jones has put together on how to streamline your office routine i.e make it a bit more digital get a bit more tech savvy and save you save yourself a bit of time do it on the move or do it with some smart new tech there's a very useful guide there though on pages 24 and 25 of this week's magazine this week's magazine working smarter, not just harder, Hugh, but the markets. What's happening? Thank you very much, Johan. Finished steer dead weight this week four seven nine point five. Uh, that is up another for five and a half p on the week, up from four seven four last week. The live weight drops back a couple of pence to two sixty seven point eight. We'll be talking more about beef prices in a minute with Michael Priestley. Uh, lambs just back slightly on the dead weight SQQ this week five one zero point six, back from five eleven three last week. The live weight goes up point one of P to 232.1 pence per kilo. Arable markets, everything's just back a bit uh, this week. In fact, back quite a lot in some cases. Feed wheat, 217.70, back from 224. Milling wheat goes back 10 pounds, uh, well, 10 pounds and 90p to be precise. It's bang on 270 quid spot this week, back from 280.9 last week. Feed barley drops below the 200 pound mark. First time for a long time, 194.80, back from 203. 
4.310. Oilseed rate drops back to £439.60, back from 4.6280. Feed peas stand on at 2.49, and feed beans stand on at 2.43. And a litre of red diesel this week edges up marginally 82.7 pence per litre. That is a 0.2 of a penny on the week from last week. Now, turning our attention back to those beef prices, Farmers Weekly's Michael Priestley joins me now to talk about this. This is unprecedented because we've never seen a bid price, ex-farm bid price, go over five quid, have we? January, we saw um, arbitrage off a four pound a kilo for cows, and now fe- fe- February it's five pound a kilo for uh, prime prime cattle. Um, it's the prime cattle deadweight prices have risen so quickly. There's a bit of a a risk that some some people might undersell their their, their cattle. It, it's kind of gone up forty two pence, you know, for four, forty or so pence a kilo since since the year started, from sort of four fifties, four sixties to nearly five pound now. Five pound is is being achieved by large finishers with big loads. Name size scheme premiums is going to take you well well over five pounds, isn't it? Yeah, I was going um, to say some some like those anger schemes. You're going to be way over five pounds because even you know there's still premium even when the price is high. They may bring the premium down from say forty to twenty p. And mm. are we seeing any geographical distribution on this price offer, or would you say it's across the whole of the UK? Part of a tight cattle supply picture, I think, for the last few years has has re- rewritten the rules on the geography of cattle prices a bit. You know the old r- rule of Scotland being number one, the north of England. Uh, having a stronger price than the Midlands, and then the Midlands being better than the South, um, it, and, and I, and then the Republic of Ireland sort of been, you know, as recently as um, seven uh, as, as November twenty one, I think, I, Irish beef price was seventy pence short of the UK average. <clears throat> well, now it, it's on par. There is basically no difference, and and Scot and the, the, the North of England seems to be have some, some of the best trade at times Northern Ireland does. It doesn't matter where you are, just know what some people are, are getting and see if you can haggle and, and, and get it for yourself. Yeah, keep pushing those prices. And then we're still seeing just ridiculous values for, for, for coal cows as well. And, and, and coal cow slaughterings, have, you know, they're, they're at certainly 10-year highs, aren't they? If you look at the DEFRA figures on cow slaughter, the numbers for for quarter four of 2023 – have been the 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 highest since since BSE basically, and you can probably go back back further. But r- record numbers of of cows being uh, uh, killed. Uh, the suck contraction in the suckler herd sort of widely known and understood, and it and it was at, and it was pre- predicted. You know, people thought well with forage, with fertilizer, with subsidies changing. The average age of farmers, you know, the, the, the stars have aligned. No, the landscape um, is it's changing hugely. And when you look, and you and I have just been looking back at that, so, hey, if you want an entertaining night out, look up the uh, DEFRA slaughterings uh, <laughs> spreadsheet. And actually, though, no, seriously, though, we're a bit sad, me and Michael. We've looked right back, and actually the, the record, so you've got 200,000 cattle or cows killed in the last quarter of last year. The record ever month for killing cows was... Uh, it was actually October 1975, 131,000. There was those big autumn exoduses coming out of dairy then right through the 70s into the early 80s. I mean, this is, you could almost argue though, Michael, and my reason for saying that is that this is on a par in terms of the percentage of the national herd, isn't it? These are some big figures, as you've just said, because the, the, the herd's never been smaller nationally. Yes. Um, and if you look even just at the autumn of 21, there was, uh, um, yeah, there's nearly eleven percent more cows called um, in in twenty twenty two. There's just over two hundred five thousand, and it's partly because people are sort of being forced to sell them, but also the uh, the uh, carrots dangling because because the trade is so good. B- beefs performed relatively well through the cost of living crisis, but just how high it can get, how the processor and and, and retailer can sort of be be squeezed. 
is is unknown. This is uncharted territory, isn't it? It totally is. And if you look at the European platform, like as you say, Ireland numbers have never been lower. The rest of Europe numbers have never been lower. There is nowhere to turn. I suppose the one big threat is, could there be a product to come from abroad that could come in and undercut? Obviously, the Brazilian Brazilians are shut down because of the BSC issues. So they're not sending their product into China. So where could that end up? But no, it's really interesting, Michael. Look, the key thing here is if you are selling cattle, make sure you have the right values on those cattle as they leave your farm. Now, turning our attention to dairy and UK Dairy Expo comes to Borderway Market at Carlisle uh, next week on Friday and Saturday. That's the 10th and 11th. Glenn Lucas is the dairy sales manager at the auctioneers H&H who are hosting the event. Uh, Glenn, just tell us a bit about the event. We're absolutely uh, super excited uh, to invite everyone back for our 11th uh, UK Dairy Expo. We have uh, once again a record number of livestock entries um, heading towards 400 uh, dairy cattle of, of all breeds and uh, another huge uh, group of trade stands as well. So it's going to be a, a great event for the industry. And in terms of the, the, the dairy cow trade where you are in the north of England at the moment, I mean, presumably demand is, is demand still pretty unprecedented for good dairy cattle? Definitely for quality. That was uh, very evident yesterday once again in our, in our monthly um, dairy day sale. We averaged per life. Um, and, and again, slightly down from where they where they have been, just with the the recent announcements um, with milk price milk price drops, but uh, that hasn't affected demand. Yesterday we averaged uh, almost twenty two hundred per life. I think we sold nearly close to three hundred and fifty head of cattle yesterday. And and robotics certainly where I am in the south of the UK, we've seen a, a real surge in uh, not just interest in robotics, but actual installation driven by a lack of labour basically in this part of the world that wants to milk cows. Is that something that's happening in the north? Oh, absolutely! It's happening all over the world, um, but definitely up here. Uh, I, I I almost think now we get a premium for the animals that we're selling that are robot trained or from from a robot system. The buyers that are using those robotic systems are are growing all the time. It's definitely going to play a massive role, not just in, in milk production, but I think robotics and AI is going to play a massive role in food production going forward. That's Glenn Lucas, who's the dairy sales manager with Auctioneers H&H. Eternit has worked side by side with farmers for over a century to build sheds with a roof they can rely on. A fibre cement sheets dampen noise, reduce condensation and keep sheds cool in summer and warm in winter. No wonder they've been outstanding in their field since 1905. Eternit Profiled Sheeting. We've got you covered. Visit eternit.co.uk to find out more. The Farmers Weekly Podcast. Now, more farmers are looking at ways to make money from carbon, but is it really black gold? We went to a farm open day in Sussex, hosted by the Iford Estate and organised by the carbon farming company Agrina. Sussex farmer Mark Chandler was among the attendees and we asked him why he went along. We've been going through a period of transition for uh, about four years now, since 2019, since our really wet autumn. Um, economic pressures have had a change, the way we farm, um, an ambition to be net zero. Um, We've been working on baselining our own farm for our carbon stocks and understanding how we improve those and how it contributes really to how we as an arable farm can achieve net zero. And are you selling carbon yourself? Uh, not at the moment, no. We're, we're in discussions with, with a few companies. We've, we've been looking into it. We've been dipping our toe in. We've talked to Trinity. We've talked to Ecometric. We're, we're talking to Agrina. You know, we want to be sure as a group of farmers that we engage with the right partner who understands what we're trying to achieve on farm um, and can help our farmers monetize the good they're doing. Sussex farmer Mark Chandler. IFID Estate Director Ben Taylor said he was looking at sustainable ways to increase farm income. Well, the whole, the whole carbon market is interesting. Um, I, I have to say I'm a little bit sceptical. I think that, that we need to be very careful about sorting out our own carbon footprint before we start looking to sell any. I mean, I've no, I've no doubt that as, as, as we as an industry move towards a more regenerative approach, we'll be sequestering more carbon and it stands to reason that if you're if you're not ploughing you're not losing your organic matter you're 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 not losing as much whether how much we can actually gain in an arable system i don't know because i i have a feeling that there's a whole thing about carbon nitrogen balances and ratios and stuff i i don't know it's a very unexplored market isn't it and 
as I said before, I'm, 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 I am nervous about selling it before we've actually got our own house in order on this, on this farm. And, and the same for, for all farmers, actually. IFA director Ben Taylor. Now, we also spoke to Thomas Gent from the carbon farming company Agrina and asked him to explain how his scheme works. So basically what our farmer does is um, they come and meet us at an event like this or at a show, you know, wherever they come across us. Um, we work with them to baseline their fields, their individual fields, as many or as few fields as they wish. And then we can understand what they're planning to do this year. And from that, we can calculate um, in, this, in this year how many certificates could they potentially produce. We issue those certificates directly to the farmer and then he has a choice of how he would like to utilise them. And that certificate says what? That certificate represents one tonne of CO2 equivalent, um, either sequestered in the soil or, or reduced. And what we do at Green is we issue that certificate to a farmer and he has the choice of how he would like to utilise it. And there's kind of a range of different options. To be honest, at the minute we see most farmers, they just want some cash and, and, they're, and they're choosing to sell and that's absolutely fine. Um, but some farmers choose to keep them, some farmers are choosing to sell them themselves and, and potentially in the future they may want to you know, sell them in the supply chain as an inset. Uh, but that market's you know, still developing. But at the minute the farmers can, can get cash if they would like to sell it. And the, but the important thing is they're only doing one year at a time. So every year they can decide they're not committing into the future. And, and a certificate, uh, one tonne of carbon, is worth what at the moment? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, at the minute, we, we have a range which we use, which is between 25 and £50 pounds per certificate. Obviously, it's quite a big range. I, t- I try and tell farmers to budget on £30 pounds per certificate as a conservative kind of number. So what should farmers do if they're interested in carbon farming? We asked Savills Farm consultant Tom Brunt. The biggest question is making sure that their business is a carbon secure business first before they start to sell their carbon. They should be looking at offsetting their own carbon or insetting their own carbon. And I think that's the biggest challenge to people is to understand where their business is currently, where their carbon balance is currently, and then what have they got to sell? What can they go to the market with? And crucially also, a lot of people want to make sure that if they are going to the market to sell carbon, that it's through a recognised system. It's a new world. It's a new industry. There's a lot of uncertainty, but people want to be sure that they're going to the right people to sell it. I mean, some people have been doing it for some years. Um, you know, people like a greener soil carbon capital. There's other people out. There's plenty of people out there. It's just a question of that market growing. And at the moment, the payment rates are in general pretty modest, but it depends how much carbon you as a business can, can um, inset in the ground and what you can do with it. And I think actually that market will grow, but it's not without challenges. That's Savills consultant Tom Brunt. So, Johan, this was a group of producers uh, you met down in East Sussex, just down the road from me, actually, near Lewis. uh, And these people were basically looking or or trying to sort of seek out where the opportunities were to effectively make money out of carbon on their farms. That's right, Hugh. This was a day that was organised by Agrina, a carbon farming company, uh, offering uh, carbon certificates. And it was producers going along to see what's what and uh, how they might monetize carbon on their farm. I think, you know, there is more and more interest in, in these different ways of generating farm income, especially with the phasing out of the basic payment scheme in England. More and more people are looking at potential opportunities on their farm and trying to make sense of it. Now, it's still, I mean, it's still pretty much the Wild West out there, isn't it, in terms of what platform you use to, how you quantify it, how all these things sort of work. Uh, I mean, obviously, companies like Agreener are trying to make it easier for people and offer some sort of oven-ready things to go forward. But it's still pretty confusing, though. You wouldn't want to be committing for, for a long period of time, would you? Well, no, and that's one of the questions that I that I did ask Thomas Gent from Agrina, who himself is a is, is a farmer. And uh, the thing with the Agrina offer, one of the things that they offer you is is these year on year agreements. So you're not signing up for ten years; you can do it in, 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 for a year or so and see how it goes. But yeah, do take some independent advice and do be you know it's that whole buyer beware thing that we've said before. Look at the small print, get some advice, and uh, and see whether it's for you don't just jump in absolutely and i think most of these deals that are out there at the moment are year or annual things and um, there's a phenomenal and we talked about this the other day and i'm not just saying because i chaired it but there is a phenomenal webinar which actually features thomas gent uh, and various other fantastic uh, very learned contributors talking about carbon uh, and opportunities on farm which is on the farmers weekly podcast channel if you want to go and listen to that uh, you can get stuck in and uh, if you're finding it confusing trying to get your head around which way to go it might 
might be a little help, but I think it'll probably be some time uh, before the dust has finally settled and everyone is uh, happy with the way that the legislation and the contracts probably roll going forward. I'm Colin Bowers from Corteva Agriscience. Univoc fungicide will offer robust control of septoria and rusts in your cereal crops again this year. It contains the unique active ingredient Inatrec, which is from a new class of chemistry and has already been proven to deliver higher yields. Discover more about the benefits of Univoc and our latest application advice at corteva.co.uk forward slash Univoc. The Farmer's Weekly Podcast. And finally, after decades of genetics heading this way from New Zealand, we have in the last year sent a whole load back. 500 Easy Care sheep have recently been sold at an auction at New Zealand, with farmers and breeders there snapping them up. One of the farmers involved here in the project to send the embryos out there so they could be born as lambs to be sold is sheep farmer Hayden Woolley, who is from Shropshire. I spoke to him earlier and started by asking him what the official definition of Easy Care sheep was. I think there's three requirements to call a sheep an easy care, according to society website rules. One is it doesn't have horns. The other is it sheds its fleece annually and doesn't require shearing. And the third requirement is it it, it lambs unassisted outdoors. And when you compare what you were doing with what you're doing now, how does that differ in terms of before you had as many easy cares? What was life like? It was horrendous, really. (laughs) I've made two great big improvements. I started out with 60 sheep. I got up to about... 500 indoors and then I started lambing outdoors and that was the first big improvement I made to my flock really was going to natural outdoor lambing and then the second biggest improvement I got up to about 4,000 ewes we were struggling with shearing and whatever and we started with wool shedding sheep I bought um, I think I bought 1,250 off Yolo Owen over three years the, the breed's founder and they've just done exactly what he said they would do they've lambed unassisted they shed their wool there's no mess there's no hassle they're the easiest sheep to keep that I've found. And in terms of uh, what's happened now, so we've now developed these easy care genetics here in the UK and and now we're sending them to other parts of the world. Well, yeah, I used to have about 3,500 Romneys and I used to buy all my rams from Wairiri, who I think are the big, I'm not sure, I think they're the biggest ram company in the world. And uh, their rep... Pierre used to come over every year and he used to sell me six or eight Romney rams. And I ran the Romneys alongside the Easy Cares and you could, there was just no comparison. I was getting the same productivity for 30% of the work. And I stopped buying his rams. And Pierre is a very, very good salesman and a very determined guy. He didn't take no for an answer. He kept calling and he kept calling and he kept calling. And in the end, I showed him the Easy Cares to try and stop him calling. <laughs> and, uh, he ended up, he, uh, he bought, he bought, well, he hired 60 ewes off me, extracted embryos and sent them to New Zealand so Wairiri could have a go at the same type of sheep. And he went on a bit of a mission around the UK looking at other leading breeders. Um, he had, he hired some ewes from um, Barry Sangster and from Moss Fennan Easy Care in Scotland. And then he had rams from Dr. Stephen Johnson in Ireland, a leading Easy Care breeder. He had, more rams from Barry Sangster, and he had more rams from Moss Fen and Easy Care. Took the frozen embryos and semen to New Zealand, and they put them into Romney ewes, and they've just had an auction and sold rams now. So, yeah, it's a complete role reversal, really, of what's been happening for the last, well, 100 years, really. It is, really. Yeah, it is, really. Yeah. Which it's- is good, really. That is good. And t- and tell us about the breeding in terms of the uh, – because people will be thinking, okay, these are easy care ewes. They're, they're a lot easier to look after because they don't need shearing. They don't get fly strike, the lamb themselves. What terminal genetics or what uh, rams do you – it's an easy care ram that you breed that goes with the easy care ewe, is it? Yeah, usually. like uh, You can put any ram you want on them for, to, to produce a terminal slaughter lamb, but I think – a large proportion of the breed is bred pure. Just you keep the replacement females. It's like a dual purpose breed, a bit like a thlin. And the ewe lambs are good for breeding and the fat and the spare surplus lambs are good for slaughter. So this wasn't just you, Hayden. This was a, there was a team of you that put this package together. Yeah, there was. Ian McDougall was the vet breeding specialist, artificial breeding specialist. Most of the embryos were mine. 
Some come from Moss Fennon, Easy Care. Some come from Barry Sangster. And then the Rams came from Dr. Stephen Johnson in Ireland, Moss Fennon, Easy Care in Scotland, Barry Sangster. And I think there was one from Campbell Tweed in the first export. And what was the average price for the Ram lambs that were sold at the recent sale? I think the average sale price for the pure Ram lambs that they sold was $4,280, New Zealand dollars, which is sort of 51, 52 pence, isn't it? That's Shropshire sheep farmer Hayden Woolley telling us about his Easy Care Sheep Genetics export price. Project. So Hugh, some good news for exporters of sheep genetics. Uh, yeah, it's a fantastic story, this isn't it? I know there's other. I said in the piece, I think the first time for like a hundred years, turning tables, sending the New Zealand some genetics, uh, as opposed to us always send uh, them always sending us genetics and ideas. Look, I know there's going to be some breeders listening to this going, "What are you talking about? We've sent stuff out there, and they've sent stuff here uh, to and fro and over the years." And I know that, but generally, the trend has been, hasn't it, Johan, that we sort of, you know, we go for these composite breed sheep, which the idea. For for example, the Highlander sheep, which we used to have here on my farm, the idea of that came from from from, from New Zealand, uh, and so on and so forth. So it's nice that we've developed something here, the Easy Care sheep, as you heard in the audio, and then we've sent that out to the Kiwis, and they've sort of absolutely mopped it up. They've uh, really gone mad and bought lots of these new ram lambs. So it's good news. Good news for sheep farmers. Bad news for sheep shearers. Yeah, it is bad news because they are <laughs> exactly uh, they they don't need to be shorn. Um, so it's going to be interesting if uh, if we see Easy Care sheep really take off. You know, we'll have a I don't know what sort of uh, percentage of the market if they took out all of New Zealand's sheep and then. Perhaps if the whole of, of Australia became Easy Care, that could have a uh, have major impacts. But of course, the Australian flock uh, is renowned for its uh, merino wools, which I'm sure they're not going to get too into the Easy Care there. But you don't know, do you? But it certainly had a, a huge impact. I mean, Hayden is a fascinating guy. You know, he started with 60 sheep. He now runs over 4,000. Um, he's done, been there, done it, got the T-shirt, and he's found these Easy Cares, and he reckons it saves him, as you heard, you know, 30 40% saving on labour. It's changed his life he doesn't have to dag he doesn't have to shear he doesn't have to worry about fly strike it's and you know, lambing is really easy so it's a win-win all round so it'll be interesting to see how it develops and how the trend catches on not just in new zealand but here as well in the uk because the the breed is is picking up more and more interest as we go forward interesting story there hugh interesting to see how that develops too Indeed, it will. The, the spread of the Easy Care sheep and how uh, how will that become? Will that become indeed more widespread? We will have to wait and see. Uh, Johan, the Farmers Weekly podcast next week. What have you got? Next week, Hugh, we'll be in Scotland again, where we'll be looking at how a conservation project is helping to revive numbers of what some people have described as Britain's most boring bird. I think that's brilliant. We talk about conservation, but it's very important, but it's really dull. Hey, you've got to listen next week if you want to find out what that most boring bird actually is. Uh, don't forget, if you want to get in touch with the podcast, it would be great to hear from you. It is podcast at fwy.co.uk. That's podcast at fwy.co.uk. Don't forget also, if you look on the podcast channel, you can find Johan's uh, Question Time 2, uh, which came from SRUC in Scotland, uh, which uh, this week, earlier this week, uh, which is a great hour of listening there. Uh, but in the meantime, for yet another week, thank you so much for listening it's been the farmers weekly podcast until next week i'm hugh broom goodbye and i'm johan tasker goodbye